Before we get into today's episode of One Shining Podcast, wanted to shout out FanDuel TV. We've got a great slate of shows this week. And in case you missed it, Through the Ringer is on Thursday this week. It is out today. If you're listening, you can go check that out. We had Nora Princiati come on talking about some of the hottest NFL topics, talking about Aaron Rodgers, talking about future versus Russell Wilson. I'm um, talking about my guy, Justin Herbert, so that's fun. We also had Jovan Bua come on, and Jovan is on the Lakers beat and the LA beat. He's talking a little bit about Bronny James and that situation. Again, it is a fun show. Go check it out. Um, it's the Ringer TV feed on Spotify or FanDuel TV Live. Go check that out now. On today's episode of One Shining Podcast, we've got the great Eamon Brennan coming on. He is a college basketball reporter. You've seen him with The Athletic. You've seen him with ESPN. He's got a great substack going right now called Buzzer. He's going to you know, run through some of the big picture things that are happening in college basketball. We'll talk about Indiana. We'll talk about Purdue. We'll talk about Tony Bennett. And we'll just talk about basketball in general. I also, before we get into today's episode, wanted to uh, send our thoughts and prayers sincerely out to the James family. Uh, we are not going to get into the weeds of the Bronny James situation here on this show. But again, um, we're waiting for more actual facts to come out. And uh, from what we know, all we know is that uh, we want Bronny to get well soon because college basketball will be a better place with Bronny playing. And uh, shout out to the support staff at USC for all they did uh, in that situation. Again, we got a show uh, that is jam-packed today. Got a lot of good topics going on. We'll do some shout-outs at the end. Uh, I just saw Barbie. I've seen Oppenheimer. I'm locked in. Kyle, anything before we want to get into today's episode? I'm circling a $120 slam ball jersey for your first place <laughs> mob, but first, Woody Durham. All right, joining us now on One Shining Podcast, he is Eamon Brennan. Uh, you might say Eamon, but we say Eamon around here. He previously covered college basketball for The Athletic, ESPN, and his work has been recognized multiple times by the U.S. Basketball Writers Association, a.k.a. folks. He is a capital J. He is a journalist. We need him on the show to get us in line. Eamon, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. Thank you, Tate. How's it going, man? It's going well, and uh, we got a lot of stories that are cooking up. And uh, if you haven't checked it out yet, Eamon is writing uh, a new substack called The Buzzer. Uh, and, and it's basically, you know, writing some great stories there, some great content. So you can keep us up to speed on that. But I did see this earlier today. You were working on a story with one of the people that we respect on the show. And we look to when we get close to uh, the NCAA tournament. Of course, we're talking about Ken Palm. Um, and you and Kim Palm have been uh, cooking up a theme, uh, you know, working on uh, this idea about in 2023, here are the facts. Men's college basketball teams played more non-conference games on neutral sites than ever before. High majors played 54% on neutral courts. Uh, we talked about this on the last show about Carolina and Kansas actually playing on campus. I said this was a breaking case of emergency moment for college basketball. Can we talk about this? Why are neutral sites bad in college basketball? Well, I mean, I just think the thing that people like about college basketball is is home environments, traditions, right. student sections, the, the band, the band, the cute old booster who's 95, who's been in the same seat for, for 50 years. Like that's the stuff people care about, about college basketball. And if you're inclined to watch college basketball in November and December and how many sports, you know, casual sports fans are inclined to do that. You want that stuff. That's what draws you in. That's what, when I was a kid, made me fall in love with college basketball, right? Like, and, you know, when I went to Indiana, that was a big part of my experience, not only at the school, but of being like, 
yeah, college basketball is great. You know, <laughs> um, it, it it drives this stuff home. And so I think for the sort of holistic, organic health of the game, just being like, hey, yeah, we're just going to play on neutral sites so we can get a little bit more cash there. We've got this TV deal set up. You know, Continental Tire is going to sponsor it. It's out, it's out T-Mobile Arena. We'll sell a bunch of tickets. Like, that's okay in the short term. But when you're getting to the point now that we got to last season, where I kind of had this vague feeling like, it feels like this is happening more and more and more. You actually go back and you know ask Ken to, to look into his database because he has all of the, the site data about where games are played. And yeah, high major teams played 54% of their mm. non-conference games in neutral sites. Consider they also play, you know, ch- conference challenge events where they're forced to play a home or away game against, the, you know, ACC, Big Ten, that kind of thing. Um, and so they have one compulsive game in there already, and they're still setting this new record for, for non-conference um, neutral site games. So it's, I feel like you were right on the podcast the other day. It is sort of a breaking case of emergency point. It's it's not what people come to college basketball for. I get that it's convenient. It, you might make a little bit more money in the short term. It may or may not make sense in terms of net rating and trying to game the system um, in terms of NCAA tournament selection. I, I have some quibbles with people who think that's why it happens. But the bottom line is like, do what Kansas and Carolina are doing. Get on campus. Big teams, big games, the best arenas. Um, draw people in. Sell what makes college basketball great. Don't just, you know, throw it in a random arena in, in South Dakota and, and think that people are going to be as interested as they would be otherwise. Yeah, shout out to South Dakota because they do hold some great games and that is a great they gym do. for shooters. I uh, wanted, wanted to say that, <laughs> but uh, you're right. I mean, we, we want to see uh, the actual home court, right? We want to see you playing in Lexington, Kentucky or playing in Assembly Hall and have that whole backdrop and that whole nostalgia that plays into it. It definitely felt like the powers that be kept pushing the fans like as far as they could push them to the brim, right? And then it eventually feels like the bubble had to pop and now we're saying... We're over this. We're over We're over the Continental Tire event at T-Mobile in Las Vegas. We've seen it however many times over. And yes, there's been some great games. Like I, I go back to that Malik Monk game when you had 47 against North Carolina in the CBS Classic. Imagine if that game was in Lexington or in Chapel Hill and how much more um, you know, of a feeling and an environment it would have been for college basketball. And I think that's what the fans want. We, we just want to see our actual teams play in our actual gyms and that's why it begs me to ask you the question, who do you think started this neutral site trend? And, and why do I think it's Coach K? Yeah, I think it is Coach K. I think he deserves, you know, so I wrote Great about answer. this in a piece. I, so you can actually go back and look at the numbers because Ken has them back to like 1997. You can see year by year sort of what the percentage trends are. And right around 2007, 2008, 2009, you start getting up in 40% range from which, you know, it's gone up and up since then, um, with the exception of COVID, obviously. Mm -hmm. And that's right. You know, in the piece, I kind of tied that to the conversation in the sport, uh, which I remember really clearly because I was writing like five to eight blog posts a day in my first couple of years at ESPN uh, at the time. And it was very much like, hey, we got to save college basketball. We got to figure this thing out. The ratings aren't as high as they should be. How do we get casual fans interested? Let's put a game on a on an aircraft carrier, let's put a game, uh, you know, let's put together the Champions Classic, which is held held together better over time, obviously. Um, but, you know, I, I kind of remember Coach Calipari um, at Kentucky having a big sort of let's rethink everything vibe at that time. And part of his rethinking everything was like, we're going to take Indiana off the schedule. We don't want to play this game anymore. 
Um, and and you go back 30 years and you tell an Indiana fan or a Kentucky fan, these two teams are not going to play on this uh, every year. And they would have thought it was the craziest idea they'd ever heard. Or the end of um, times. I mean, they, they would have literally thought that the world ended if they're not going to play yeah. each other. Yeah. And you go back, you go back and look at some of these YouTube clips, which I did for the piece of like a random 1986 Indiana Kentucky game at Assembly Hall. Not even of that good of an Indiana team. Kentucky was just okay, but it sounds like collective insanity in there for 40 minutes. It's nuts. Um, but anyway, so I, I got a couple comments being like, you know, it's not just Cal's fault. Like Coach K was doing this a long time ago. And it's true. And you look at Duke's schedules in like 1991, 92, which I had one commenter note, they played on the road everywhere those years. They played everybody they could play. They went and took on everybody. And over time, Coach K kind of figured out, like, I don't really have to do this. We can play a couple neutral court games. You know, we'll go up to the Meadowlands or whatever. We'll go to Madison Square Garden once once a year, once every couple of years. And everybody else will come to us. And you look at their schedules and they'd have like one true road game <laughs> every couple of seasons. And it would be in the ACC Big Ten Challenge because they just had to go to play, you know, at Indiana or, or at Illinois or whatever. And so, yeah, he I think he honestly was kind of the master of this. Um, and then it's become more and more financially incentivized over time with, with more of these events and TV deals and um, people trying to kind of copy the magic of, of the Maui Invitational and reproduce it in other places. So um, we've gotten to a point now where, you know, an actual majority of, of cross-conference games in November and December are being played at neutral sites. And that just seems crazy to me. Yeah, it's insane. And I also want to shout out John Shire, but it is a part of the uh, ACC-SEC challenge. So we shouldn't give too much credit, but I do like that Duke is going to go to Arkansas. They're going to play, you know, in Bud Walton Arena. They're going to get that experience. They're going to have the must bus there with that entire insane crowd. I'm sure must bus will rip his shirt off at some point. And that'll <laughs> be good for college basketball to see Duke have to play in that environment. And uh, that was a great point about Duke scheduling back when they had Bobby Hurley and Christian Leitner. Um, Coach K wanted the rest of the world to see how good his teams were. And then I think as the the stages, you know, got later in his career, it was more of preservation and, uh, you know, almost trying to game the game of scheduling, which you you can't be mad at. You just have to respect the player. You know what I mean? That's all it is. I mean, that, that, and now everyone is trying to fall in line with the same ideology and, uh, you know, and now we have Houston scheduling, you know, Our Lady of the Lake um, a couple years ago and, you know, Will Wade scheduling um, like high school youth groups to play against. I mean, it's it's, you know, everyone's trying to game the game at some level. But I hope that we get back to a place where we're playing on campus. We're seeing good basketball. We, we get those environments because it's good for everybody. And it feels like you're a part of something bigger, which is the whole idea of college basketball, which is I wanted to ask you a little bit about your background growing up. Did you grow up an Indiana fan? I know you went to Indiana. No, I grew up in Iowa. Um, nice. But, you know, big college sports state also grew of course. up. Basically a Hawkeyes fan. But my, you know, my parents weren't from Iowa. So it wasn't, you know, it was not as hard of a, tra uh, a transition to becoming an Indiana fan once I went to school there. But, you know, one of my uh, earliest sports like profound, like I am a sports fan experiences was a little kid going to Carver Hawkeye arena, listening to Iowa games on the radio, you know, driving around and, uh, uh, you know, amid the corn and, and with my dad. So, um, yeah, grew up kind of a college sports fan in many ways, pro sports fan too, kind of the way you are when you're in high school, you're just like omnivorous about all things sports. Like you right. just take all, you know, take all, take all of it in. And, um, then I went to Indiana and that kind of, as I mentioned earlier, like hammered home, like, the, the the entire culture in that state, uh, not just at IU, but also Purdue, also the high school culture in that state, going around doing stuff with the student paper and 
special projects and stuff where you go see these 8,000 seat high school basketball arenas. And it's just like you get immersed in that. And then you, you come out of there after four years and you're just like, I am a lifelong college basketball die hard now and I didn't even intend on that being the case you know yeah that's like uh, Mark Cuban's story is basically he wanted to hear Indiana basketball games so that's how he invented like the first streaming service that he ended up selling to make all of his millions to kind of start his empire and it all started because he loved Indiana basketball so much um, and that's kind of what that state represents I wanted to ask you about Indiana Purdue because uh, you know when we got into the offseason I was talking about storylines forecasting the future a little bit I think Purdue Indiana is in Probably, I, I think, the healthiest place it's been in in quite some time where it does feel like it's almost even, right? Purdue has kind of owned them, especially during the Archie era. Then Mike Woodson comes back and he gets sort, sort of that shine back on, you know, the Crimson and you're letting people believe, um, you know, in the the future of IU. And and just in, in general with Woodson, there was a lot of people when he got hired that were saying it doesn't make sense. feels like an outdated hire, yada, yada, yada. But he's tapped back into that Bob Knight part of Hoosiers hysteria um, and it does feel like, you know, you get McKenzie and Baco, who's going to, you know, leaves Duke because of Filipowski coming back. And then he goes and, and decides to go to Indiana. Indiana's in the fold for a lot of these top recruits. So like how healthy is Indiana right now with Mike Woodson? And then we'll talk about Purdue. Yeah, no, I think, I think last year was a big, big breakthrough for, for Indiana. I mean, the, you know, speaking of Purdue beating Purdue as obviously massive. Um, but the, I think the thing with Woodson is, you know, you you come back, you inherit Trace Jackson Davis, who was very good and promising in in the Archie Miller um, era, but like didn't come anywhere close to achieving his potential. And you see him over the course of a couple seasons with Woodson, and he is like, you know, I think with apologies to Cody Zeller, probably the best Indiana big man since Alan Henderson. Mm. Um, just a uh, uh, an all-time Indiana guy now. And that is a, a lot of that is Woodson. And I think he got Trace Jackson Davis to buy in in a way that uh, other coaches weren't able to do. Uh, I think he got, you know, he rung about as much as you could possibly ring out of his college career. And then you build a team around him that, look, it's not reinventing the wheel. You've got a great big guy. Get some shooters on the floor. Get a guy who can handle the ball out top. Um, Get a, get a five-star freshman who can make shots from the mid-range and, and beat you one-on-one. Like he, he built a team that is sensible, that runs solid, decent NBA stuff, that isn't trying to grind games out. Um, it, it's, you know, a very competent in, you know, basketball coach, basketball program at this point. Like I don't think Mike Woodson is reinventing the wheel in any way, but he has done all of the competent stuff on the court. And then as you kind of mentioned off the court, he has reunited the fans. He's brought guys back like Calvert Chaney is back. Yep. Um, who was one of the guys who was willing to kind of, uh, he wasn't so diehard into the Bob Knight camp that he wouldn't come back before Bob Knight came back a couple of years ago. But there were guys like that. And everybody with Woodson, because he's such a dyed-in-the-wool Bob Knight guy, um, all of that stuff is kind of gone now. And instead of having Tom Crean, who was having success, begging these guys to come back, you know, and, and begging Coach Knight to come back. And they're they're honoring, you know, the 1981 team, um, you know, 25th anniversary in, in, in 2016. And you spend a week, like I spent a week in Bloomington when I was working at, at Indiana, or at, pardon me, at ESPN, to 
cover that story. It was rumored that Bob Knight was going to come back. And it's just like this whole psychodrama that just affected the program for, you know, 30 years almost. And, and that's all gone now too. And part of that is, is Bob Knight's getting older and he's not as vocal. He's not going to Purdue events and trashing Indiana anymore. But um, Woodson has played a big role in that. And, and you can kind of tell Indiana fans feel more collective and kind of more settled and obviously um, winning a bunch of games and, and having a really nice season like they did last year really helps on that front too. Yeah, and when Bob Knight came back, I mean, it kind of felt like hell was freezing over, right? I mean, when he walked <laughs> on the court and, you know, he finally got that reception, it did feel, um, you know, for lack of a better term, it felt like closure um, for all that back and forth, like you said, where Knight was taking shots at IU and, and the administration, and then there were fans that were splintered and split. It felt like Mike Woodson came and helped ushered in, usher in like an era like post-Knight that feels like everyone's kind of rowing in the same direction for the first time. And that gets us to the other side of the rivalry, which I think is fascinating. And that's Purdue because their coach, who's you know now going into his 17th year, Matt Painter, he grew up around Pat Knight, Bob Knight's son. He grew up around Bob Knight. He understands kind of the Hoosiers' uh, way to be, so to speak. And he has been incredible, right? I mean, they, they haven't missed the tournament since 2015. Since he came back to the program, I mean, they've won the regular season Big Ten 2010, 2017, 2019. Last year, they won the regular season and they won the Big Ten tournament. Um, they had the National Player of the Year in Zach Eady. All things look great for Purdue, but we always know that the conversation between these two rivals is banners, right? I mean, these Indiana fans, they point at the five banners and they, sh- they say, show me yours. And then Purdue says, well, we have this one Helms banner uh, that got ret- <laughs> retroactively put in, in 19, you know, from 1930. And then they have two final fours, right? So um, it, there's always that pressure. And then last year, you know, the, the elephant in the room is with the National Player of the Year coming off a Big Ten tournament win, um, you lose to a 16 seed. And, you know, Fairleigh Dickinson shocks the world, FDU, everybody's on the bandwagon. But the other side of that conversation is, what do we do to parse through Purdue at this point? And, and what do we, how do we even talk about Purdue right now? Yeah, that's, that's a fantastic question. So I just want to say before we launch into this, that just the invocation of Purdue and Fairleigh Dickinson uh, calls to mind watching Zach Eady stand like six feet from the rim with the ball above his head and like five dudes who are like six, three <laughs> running around him, pestering him right. like gnats and him getting gradually more agitated. And I'm, I went to Indiana. I have really very little ill will towards Purdue and sort of the classic Indiana. I didn't grow up in the state. I've got friends who are like, hate Purdue. I'm the kind, I'm not really there and I don't pretend to be, but like coming from me, it I get, uh, you know, goosebumps thinking about that. I can only imagine what Purdue fans feel thinking about that or watching that footage or what Matt Painter feels like just an all time nightmare uh, image in my mind and a very specific one in a way that even like the UMBC Virginia one, I guess like them making threes from 25 feet against Virginia kind of is, but the Purdue thing is just like rough, you know? So where do you go from there? Right. right. I think- and, and how can we, you know, as as guys that are in the media and we're supposed to talk about Purdue, Zach Eadie's coming back. He's playing with Team Canada. He's probably going to be even better than he will. You would expect he would develop even more and be even probably better than he was last year. So they're going to be a team that's in contention in the conversation. But like, how can we talk about that with the idea that we've seen this backcourt, you know, lose to a 16 seed? Well, I would I would say this. 
I covered Virginia in 2018, 19, um, because I was, I live out here in DC. I was doing kind of a little bit more local stuff for the athletic when the athletic was, um, figuring out stuff as it always (laughs) seems to be. And, And, uh, you know, it, that team went through this entire thing. And I think the similarities are, are pretty profound. You've got a coach who has had a lot of success in the regular season not as much success in the tournament, or at least not as much success as you might expect in the tournament, whatever the you know sort of seed expectation comes out to be. Um, you've got a number one seed getting upset by a number 16 seed. You've got a team that largely returns for the following season. Uh, you've got um, two coaches that are really, I think, well-liked, but are questioned as to like, does their style work in the tournament? Can you win... Can you win if you're, you know, if you're Purdue? Can you win if your best player is a big guy? If you're Virginia, can you win if you play 60 possessions a game and let teams uh, shoot over the top of you? Because that's part of your defensive ideal. And I just think, you know, my my view on this goes back to that Virginia team, but also back to Villanova under Jay Wright when they were getting upset in the first round every year and Gonzaga when it seemed like they were getting upset frequently. Even Bill Self at Kansas, who had a huge stretch in the tournament where he'd win the big 12 every year and they they'd get knocked out before the sweet 16 or, or in the sweet 16. Yeah. Bug now. Like, right. Exactly. Like, and so you have these stretches for these coaches that if you stand, stand back from it and take the sample size and look at the regular season and look at how they're performing against good leagues, you're just like, well, the tournament's crazy, crazy stuff happens. What, you know, what, how much can you really take from that? I think in Purdue's case, there are tweaks they're going to make. I think Matt Painter's already said that. And Tony Bennett did that. You know, he got he brought in Kihei Clark, so he had somebody who could pressure the ball. They played a different offensive style, like 50% of their possessions the following season. Matt Painter's going to figure some stuff out. But I also think, yeah, as sort of like media members, people who talk about college basketball, how you think about this Purdue team, you you have to obviously keep it in context. But I also think there's just a, a baseline fundamental thing of like crazy stuff happens in the tournament and you can't win in the tournament or coaches can't win in the tournament until you can't. And then you do, and no one says that ever again, although people are kind of saying it about Virginia again now, which is kind of funny. But it, it, generally speaking, you know, Villanova couldn't win in the tournament with that style, and then they won two national titles in, what, three years, uh, four years? So th- there, there are plenty of examples, I think, where I, I would not discount Purdue at all. I do think that to change some things stylistically a little bit, but it'll help to have older guards. It'll help to be stronger, more, more physical out on the perimeter. Um, that was their one sort of flaw, even as good as those guards were last year. I, I really like this Purdue team, but the psychological stuff that that Virginia dealt with all year, constantly talking about losing to a 16 seed, that's going to be the most interesting thing to me because I think on the floor, Purdue's going to be really good again. Yeah, and I think Purdue, if you're Matt Painter, you probably want to reach out to Tony Bennett and Jay Wright because like you said, 2015, Villanova loses to NC State. Um, the, you know, Dylan Ennis is on Villanova. Then they lose to NC state in the second round. It was a big upset, right? We saw the, the Villanova girl was crying, playing the flute, right? That was like a, a very memeable moment. And then, mm-hmm. you know, everyone writes off Villanova. They can't win. Da, 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 da. And then the next year, literally they come back and Chris Jenkins hits the shot and they win the national championship. Right. And, yep, yep. and Virginia, the same thing, right? They, they, 2018, we, we all remember UMBC. It was like, I can't believe this is happening. Um, Tony Bennett looked in shock. They go on a whitewater rafting trip. Uh, they, <laughs> they bond with each other and then they come back and win the national championship. So if you're Matt Painter, you're saying, why can't, why, why can't we do the same formula as these other guys? So I do like trying to buy into the, we had to go here to get here kind of thing. 
Um, yeah. That would be the argument. And they have the Maui Invitational, right? They, that field is stacked. You have Tennessee, Syracuse, uh, Purdue, Gonzaga, Kansas, UCLA, Marquette, and Chaminade. Um, and they play Gonzaga in the first round of the Maui Invitational. So they have an opportunity earlier, like early in the year, to face a team that, you know, Gonzaga is going to have their high expectations as always. They play well in Maui. Last time we saw them there, Rui Hachimura is playing, you know, against Zion Williamson. So um, they know how to play in Maui. So that'll be a good matchup to see where Purdue is. I want to pivot and talk about a guy who did do this before, Tony Bennett. You mentioned him. Um, what is the next act of Tony Bennett? Like, wh- where does Tony go from here? Does he evolve? Does he double down? Um, you know, what what is next for Tony Bennett at Virginia? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think, um, yeah, so what, one of the last, you know, big stories I did at The Athletic was about exactly this topic. And myself and Seth Davis talked to a bunch of people, former players, um, current players, players who have just transferred. Um, <laughs> and... The the thesis was, can you run a program the way he wants to run a program, which is essentially in sort of the classical recruit a group of guys, get them till they're juniors and seniors, refresh with another group of guys, the, the way people were doing it 30 years ago with some tweaks um, in an era now where guys can leave right away. I mean, this year they lost Caden Shedrick, which was not a surprise to anybody given the way his season went. He was benched midway through the year for Ben Vanderplas. Virginia went on a winning run, um, but Shedrick was understandably upset having worked his way into the starting lineup after redshirting as a freshman. He's been there for four years or whatever. He leaves, he goes to Texas, probably does a bit better NIL-wise than he was going to do at Virginia. Yep, That's one That's one aspect of it. The other is Isaac Trout, uh, four-star freshman. He redshirts his freshman year the way you know DeAndre Hunter did, the way Malcolm Brogdon did. The classic Virginia, like when this guy comes out of his red shirt sort of apprenticeship, he's going to be a beast idea. And he does that. And then before he plays a minute for Virginia, he transfers to Creighton. He's from Nebraska. He says he wants to go home and be closer to family. Very understandable. He was homesick. But that one hurts. Um, that's that's a painful. You developed a guy for a year and then now he's going to go play for a, a you know a top three or four Big East team. Um, so that that those are the two things that kind of caused us to start asking these questions and I, you know, talk to uh, other players or former players and they think maybe some flexibility is, is going to be needed. Some, you know, figuring out how to incorporate and he has incorporate more transfers, but also figure out ways of, of retaining guys. Um, but if you talk to Tony, he is locked in on what he wants to do. And that is what he's always done. And I, I think there's something to that too. I mean, you look at like Marquette this year, Marquette retained everybody. They didn't lose a single transfer. And it's because guys have good, you know, have roles. They know they're going to play a lot. They're happy where they are. The culture is such that, you know, you don't want to leave a place where you're really happy and, and you're thriving. Virginia wants to get back to that. And it isn't always easy. And at the end of the day, you got to recruit guys who um who are really good players also. But the, you know, talk to to talk to Tony, he is. He's going to take transfers. He's, you know, they, they have a few more this year. This year's team is going to be really interesting, although Reese Beekman is back, which is massive. Yep. When we wrote the story, it looked like he was going to stay in the draft, which would have been, you know, a devastating loss for them. Beekman being back and kind of turning into a star this year is, is the real interesting thing about this Virginia team. But they're, otherwise, they're going to be really new um, and, and pretty young. And it's going to be fascinating to see where they go from here and kind of what this next cycle looks like in terms of roster building, but also... Like culturally, how do you survive in an, in a time where you want guys to be fourth and fifth years 
And, you know, it's, it's a lot easier if you're not playing as a freshman or sophomore to, to leave and, and go find somewhere else that'll take you. Yeah, it's it's kind of like uh, the irony of today's game. It does feel like a lot of guys are trying to reclass to get into school. But then the yeah. reality is that there's older guys that have transferred in to actually play immediately. So they're going to have to sit sit behind some guys. And now when you go to your first school, it might just be the place where you train for your next opportunity to be a star somewhere. Like, you know, Brandon Pajimski comes to mind, right? He goes to Illinois. He's kind of, you know, not able to get playing time, not able to crack the rotation. Then he goes to Santa Clara, is the franchise star of the team. And now, you know, he's in the NBA. It just feels like uh, it, it's harder to convince guys to kind of wait around and be patient. And that's uh, what Tony has to do a little bit. And luckily for him, Ron Sanchez, right, comes back. And, you know, mm -hmm. and Ron has worked with his dad. He worked with Dick Bennett at Washington State. And then, you know, came with Tony and was with him for, what, like 10 years. And then he goes to Charlotte for five years. And now he's back. He's probably yeah. someone that is, you know, young enough and, and willing to kind of work on the roster construction side for Tony. And that could be good news as well. Right. And it's he's a great example of like, we're doubling down. We're going back to a guy who was early, here early in the tenure when the transfer portal wasn't really a thing. I mean, guys transferred, but they had to wait a year. So mm -hmm. the incentives were different. The numbers of, of guys doing it every year were, were, were way different. And Ron Sanchez is sort of the classic Tony Bennett associate head coach. And he's got two of them now. They're, you know, his assistants are long tenured. And I think it says something that he didn't go out and get a guy who's like super plugged in. I mean, not that Ron Sanchez isn't, he is, but he didn't get some like 34 year old who uh, is constantly working the phones, knows who's available before they're actually available, is constantly working to get guys in, like, you know. Uh, a guy who you would think Musselman might hire at Arkansas or something, right? Like he he's going back to the classic assistants. He's going to continue to try to build the program the way he wants to build it. And I think among his peers, people admire Tony for that. You know, he's he's really well liked. He's a super competitive guy, but he's a very nice person at the same time. And I think there's a lot of respect for him in the profession. I think there are Virginia fans who are. 100% all in whatever Tony wants to do, understandably so. And I think there are some Virginia fans who think, you know, we could stand to like switch things up a little bit here. Um, but it, you know, he's won the only national title in school history. He has a ton of leash way beyond a couple of of, you know, early tournament losses as they've had in the last few seasons here. Um to start feeling any kind of pressure to change his strategy. So, he's doubling down. He's going all in on we're building a program the old school way. We're going to get old and stay old. And maybe it'll work. Maybe not. I don't think it's impossible, but it's going to be very difficult. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Tony is probably the anomaly that maybe could operate in that capacity. And he might be um, one of one that can do that in today's right. climate. I did want to ask you about some, you know, trying to forecast what the future looks like for some of the big coaching dominoes that could fall, you know, just some of the names that are out there. You mentioned like a muscleman. If we get into this new world where NIL is top priority and the transfer portal is top priority and roster construction and management is top priority and you need to have go-getter type coaches and some of these top programs are in an arms race to keep up with each other. I mean, what are the names that you think will be some of the quote-unquote, like what Calipari was when he went to Kentucky, right? I mean, what are those names that are out there? Obviously, we know like a NATO we know like an Eric Musselman, but what about a guy like Scott Drew? Like, is there a world in which a blue blood says we want to take him from this Baylor environment? Like, a, let's say in a vacuum, like a Kentucky, um, you know, down the road says they want to like, do we do we anticipate a world where there are some big moves for coaches to be made or um, are guys going to kind of try to stay packed? And, and run what they do and stay in more comfortable places. Because it used to be you climb the ladder and I don't know what the ladder looks like now. 
Yeah, it's it's a little weird. I mean, um, you know, you have to kind of think about what jobs are going to be open, right? And I think Kentucky is the obvious one. Like that's one of the best, you know, two or three jobs in the sport. And um, Calipari is not going to be around forever, although he has a contract that goes forever. So <laughs> yeah, he does have, have a lifetime on. contract. People, that'll, that'll have to be resolved at some point. <laughs> um, if if he wants to leave, or if, or if Kentucky, you know, wants him to leave, but. Um, you know, things got a little dicey there with him last year there and there were people floating like, Oh, Cal might be looking at the Texas job. So you never know. Um, I think Kentucky, honestly, their first, their first call would be to Nate Oates. Cause mm-hmm. I think, I think Kentucky has sat and watched Alabama kind of, um, lap them in the last couple of years. And they would be very eager to get some of what Nate Oates is doing and, and be, uh, not just a really good team, but like an exciting up and down team. Again, Kentucky have. You know, I think Kentucky has from the Patino era, particularly uh, an affinity for that kind of basketball. Um, you know, it, you the Scott Drew is a great one. I think he's really settled at Baylor, but there might be like, yeah, I, I'll have a a late career sort of. I'll take a chance on something. I honestly thought Texas, and and it became untenable because of how well Rodney Terry did. But I kind of said, you know, if you're Texas, like you already pulled this off once. And and got Texas A and M's rising star head coach. Why don't you go to Baylor and call Scott Drew and tell him, "Hey, man, what like what what does it take?" Um, that would have been an interesting one for me because Texas is Texas, and and they have the um, money. Yeah, I mean they, they have the money. Is, and, yeah, they're one of those places where they can literally get a blank check out and say, "What what is your number? What what would it exactly. take to get you here?" Exactly. And so it it's it's a never say never thing with Texas, but um, no, I think. You know, Dusty May is at Florida mm. Atlantic, obviously stay, staying at Florida Atlantic, kind of doing the Brad Stevens thing in that he's not, oh, yeah, we had a great year. I'm going to jump to the first available job. Um, and there are a lot of Indiana fans are really, really um, hyped on Dusty May as being the eventual Mike Woodson success, successor. I, I think Miami fans are hyped up on him coming to Miami uh, yeah. after Larinaga, when, whenever Larinaga decides to step away. That's another one, too. Yeah, he'll be good. I mean, what's really interesting is that. You know, remember when Brad Stevens was, you know, sort of at the height of his college popularity and it was, um, oh God, you know, this guy could coach anywhere he wants and Indiana fans are, you know, setting up vigils outside his, his house or whatever <laughs> to get him to come to, to IU. Um, I think that there isn't really a guy quite like that right now. Um, and I also think it's interesting that people used to talk about Brad Stevens as like, well, if Duke opens up, you know, whenever Coach K retires, I mean, they'll want to hire someone from internal, but they should look at Brad Stevens. He could get that job. Brad Stevens could get the UNC job. And those two jobs came and went and were replaced by guys that the legends handpicked, which is how it usually goes. Um, but we have no guarantees on how long that's going to last, right? right? And you know you know a lot more about Carolina than I do. And so maybe there is just a, a demand at Carolina that some they have to be from the family. Like say Hubert has a couple, you know, disappointing season this year and another one next year, whatever the case may be. Maybe it's, we got to find someone else from the family, but I don't know where that like 100% slam dunk. Let's go get Brad Stevens guy necessarily is for a program like that at that phase in his career. And maybe that's why Brad Stevens is the GM of the Celtics. Now, like he just (laughs) went on a crazy trajectory. Right. But I don't know that we necessarily have that guy possibly with the exception of Dusty May. Yeah. Dusty May is probably the name that people throw out now, but he's also like the hottest name because we just saw him in the tournament. If it's Carolina and that job were to open up, I do think Jerry Stackhouse, Wes Miller would probably be the two names that come up. But 
they're not Brad Stevens level where you're like, oh, this guy can come in and save the program and 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 everything will be hunky dory moving forward. Um, so then you get into you know the same pool that like a Kentucky or a Kansas would be in, right? Like if Bill Self says I only want to coach three more years and then I'm out, what what happens if Billy Donovan says, oh, I'll go to Kansas, right? Right. Um, th- there's still those types of players that are that are involved that you we don't even know the names that would come up, you know what I mean? That would take some of those jobs because of the resources and the fan bases and uh, the blank checks that come with that. Right. So um, it, it'll be fascinating. One last thing, uh, even before I let you go, I wanted to talk to you about, it is fascinating like being a, a CBB college basketball reporter um, in, in today's time. I saw a great Tracy McGrady quote. He said, I don't watch too much NBA. I watch more college basketball. Um, you know what I mean? It's, it's just a better sport for me to watch. He didn't even play college basketball. Uh, if you if you look at the ratings, right, college basketball is the you know the the higher rated right than these NBA playoff games. But for whatever reason, it feels like companies the coverage is moving away. Lafonso Ellis gets laid off. You know what I mean? You you see all this stuff happening at ESPN. How hard is it to kind of realize that the popularity is there, but it does feel like the powers that be are moving away from college basketball coverage? Yeah, it's it's. Um, I mean. Uh, has affected me personally and is absolutely right. uh, super annoying. Um, now I, it's, it's one of those things where I think at the athletic, you know, without going too deep into it, that was one of the things that really appealed at the start of um, when I joined is they were building a college basketball desk and section that really understood the, the sort of the diehard college basketball fan that wanted uh, to apply a level of storytelling that you would get in in you know your old Sports Illustrated yeah. magazines, Curry um, Kirkpatrick, you know Frank the Ford types. Yes, like d- deep dives on players, coaches, um, deep dives on, you know, I, I wrote a lot of those kinds of stories. I also wrote columns, you know, every week, twice a week that were um, silly and hopefully kind of funny, but also very informative, that kind of stuff. Um, and I think there's there is a view kind of out there that like it's harder to get people to pay attention to college basketball or something. I'm not really sure why that exists. I think the ratings are, are good. I think this is a thing that I'm going to write on the, on the newsletter at some point here, as we get um, a little closer to the season. So that's something I've, you know, have been kicking around in my head for, for months is like, if you step back and look at it, college basketball is in as good a place as it's been for a long time. I mean, the entirety of my career covering the sport, which is goes back uh, basically to like 2007, if you don't include my college years, has been how do we save college basketball? One and done's ruining college basketball. What do we do about you know the the pace of play is too slow? It's too physical. Like there's always been some existential crisis facing college basketball. And you look at it now, and I guess people would say the transfer portal NIL. I think both of those things are good. Like look at the players that are staying in college basketball. And look, look at, at the, the look at the news cycle. Right, we're talking about college basketball. Like it, it, it sucks for the coaches, but I mean it's twenty four seven now. Yeah, I mean, you have a mini version of NBA free agency that if you're smart content-wise, you could totally sell like in the spring. Um, you have like Zach Eady, you know, five, six years ago, he's not coming back this year. Mm-hmm. Like Purdue's a special case, but like he's going to go try and get a pro contract and he'll get drafted late in the second round because the NBA doesn't want big guys who aren't super fast. And that's the end of Zach Eady's basketball career. He goes and plays in Europe somewhere or whatever the case may be. Like these guys are staying now. Armando Baycott is still in school. 
Yeah. You know, I like someone's going to tell me that again. I mean, yeah, it it breaks my brain every time I hear it. Yeah. So because it's the, you know, NIL opportunities for these guys, you can transfer. So, so teams are older, they're more experienced. You know, you can rebuild your team quickly. So if your team's bad, like if you're Georgetown bad a year ago, Georgetown's not going to be that bad this year. Mm-hmm. And that's good for college basketball. So the sport as a whole, when you really step back for a level of talent, experience, uh, the way it's being played stylistically is in a better spot than it's been for like almost two decades. And so it is very frustrating when uh, there's this sort of very 50,000 foot view of college basketball is kind of like, oh, it's this initial little thing. That's fun. That's nice. And like, you, if you're actually in it, you're like college basketball is kind of cooking right now. Like you guys need to pay more attention. It's huge. It's huge. And uh, the 2022 final four, when you had those four teams in it, being in new Orleans uh, boots on the ground, just seeing that I was like, this is massive. This is massive. I mean, and, and that environment for Duke Carolina, I've never felt that type of electricity in a building in my entire life. And I probably never will to be quite honest with you. So I, I did want to highlight that college basketball um, you know, even though the, the haters want to say differently, I think it is, like you said, I think it is cooking at this point. Um, and, and that is a good thing. One last thing I wanted to ask you a surprise team, maybe an off the beaten path team to look forward to this year. Um, and then we'll get you to plug everything that you got going on. Oh, an off the path team to look forward to. Oh, Maryland. Okay. There you go. Perfect. Love it. Maryland. Maryland's brought basically everybody of note back. Um, Kevin Willard's a really good coach. They got Jameer Young back when he was kind of like, putting smoke signals out that he needed a little more NIL help. Maryland, Maryland folks came through from him on that one. Kind right. of made sure he, you know, got, got that taken care of. So, um, I think Maryland has a chance that, you know, for, for what Willard's first year last year, kind of putting together the pieces of, of the tail end of the Turgeon era and getting the most out of them. I think they looked really solid for most of the season and they have a chance to, to really dial it up. And I, I'm all in on Kevin Willard. I thought that was a great hire. I think if you ever go to Seton Hall and see their facilities, it's like one of the gyms I grew up playing in in Iowa at in the basement of like a Catholic school. Uh, the ceilings are low. Their practice gym is like non-existent. And what he did at Seton Hall with those resources, apply that to Maryland, which is a place that has resources. I think he's going to be really good. I think Maryland's going to be good. Yeah, and it's kind of the time of the second generation coaches. You know, Mike Malone, son of Brendan Malone. You know, Kevin Willard, son of Ralph Willard. Uh, you know, Dan Hurley, son of Bobby Hurley, right? There's a lot of coaches that are like the second gen, same way that it is with the NBA stars, Stephen Curry, Del Curry, whatever it is. So uh, I like the second generation coaches. They, they kind of have some know-how that's built in. Um, which I appreciate. My surprise team, I wanted to throw at you just to put on your radar, California, um, Mark ah. Madsen. I, I have, uh, I, I've heard some good things about what Mark, Mark Madsen has cooking up there at Berkeley. So uh, that, that is uh, maybe not a team that gets to the NCAA tournament, but maybe a team that you know beats Arizona and everyone's like, what's going on here? Um, Stanford so, fans will be shaking in anger if that's, <laughs> they, if that's the case. They will, be <laughs> they very will not be happy. Yes, yes. Well, they want their NBA champion there, uh, Mark Madsen. But um yeah, man, I appreciate you coming on the show and uh, let us know where we can find all your work. Sure, yeah. So um, I'm on Twitter at Eamon Brennan yep. and my newsletter is called Buzzer by Eamon Brennan. It's uh, at EamonBrennan.com, so it's easy to find. And it's, uh, you know, you can sign up for free. You can kick me a few bucks a month if you want all the paid posts and stuff. There's some benefits for subscribers and uh, all that good stuff. It's been good so far. It's growing every day, so it's been fun. I love it. Uh, go follow that now. Go uh, stay tuned to what he's got going on. Eamon Brendan, thanks so much for coming on One Shining Podcast. We'll have you back, man. Thank you.
All right, there you have it. Um, we have, this is fun. These Wednesdays are, are turning into a fun little activity where I figure out who I want to talk to this week and I bring them on. We have a great conversation. I get some background, get to do some journalistic duties and uh, and then we get to do shout outs at the end and I can talk about whatever I want to. So I want to start with this. I saw Barbie last night, Kyle. I saw it in theaters at the Grove in Los Angeles and uh, I'm gonna. Ha- I hate to say it. I know people are going to be upset about this. Kind of loved it. Thought it was hilarious, made me laugh, great soundtrack, and uh, made you think a little bit, Kyle. So uh, for all the Barbie haters, Barbie's good. That's good, because I want to go to the movies, and... uh, You have no choice. You're married now. You have to go to Barbie. But I wanted to go to the movies, and Oppenheimer, honestly, it sounded like I was just going to be a little depressed, and um, I don't know. Oppenheimer is is a masterpiece. You have to go see Oppenheimer. There's no... I'm almost out of, like, it's out of, like, protests at this point. What did J. Cole say? Why can't two legends coexist? Why can't Barbie and Oppenheimer both be great? And guess what? They both are. I was never assuming Barbie would be a legend, but what I want to do is see Mission Impossible, and she was like, right. I was like, I'm not going to bring you to Oppenheimer. I'm not even super jazzed about it anyways. Mm. Uh, and and I was like, what about Mission Impossible? That's like a classic movie. It's summertime. It's Tom Cruise. The guy's 61, for Christ's sake. Blockbuster. Uh, yes. And she was like, no. So uh, it's going to be Barbie, and I'm glad that I'm not going to suffer. Yeah, I will say this. Ryan Gosling, hilarious. It felt like Ryan Gosling finally stopped trying to be cool. You know what I mean? And he just leaned into it. And that's what we all wanted. It felt like Alan from Remember the Titans. That was the last time I really liked Ryan Gosling. Oh, we've seen him in a couple things. Don't you think that he that was... That I really liked him, though. Like, he's, you know, he has to play too cool for school because he's supposed to be like the yeah, hottest guy. That was like, right. come on. <laughs> yeah, right. Let it go. And uh, he leaned in. He was great. And uh, Oppenheimer was great. But I did figure out something... That is a an epidemic, a pandemic. I don't know what you want to call it, but what is this new phenomenon where people record and take pictures of the movie screen? This is everywhere. I went to Oppenheimer at the Chinese Theater. People were filming the screen. People were taking <laughs> pictures of the screen. I had never seen this before. Maybe the pandemic, I haven't been back in the movie theaters like that, but this is this has to stop. It's I, life now, though. It, it is not it's life. Good, it's dinner. I mean, it's like, you know, it used to, I, I, I used to it's be so fair. bothered about like dinner and everyone's like, hold on, don't touch that. I got to take a photo for nobody. Food eats for, or phone eats first. Yeah. yeah. All the people that say I'll that. I'll do it for Joe that. House. I was actually doing it for Joe House when he was like, get those, which we've never done anything with. Yeah. And we Vegas, recorded you a thing. smacked my phone because you were like, house of eats, <laughs> house of carbs needs this. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I hate, I hate being that guy, but I'll do it for Joe House. But um, it's just, that's everywhere. It's, it's movies. It's, it's concerts. It's amusement parks. It's a fun time at the bar. It's just. We're just taking photos of everything. That's why you shout out the people that don't. David Beckham, when Messi scored, he's just sitting there not with his phone out. Right. Uh, Phil Knight, when LeBron broke the scoring record, he's just sitting there watching. Now it's it's kind of like tattoos where like, n- not to bring up uh, you know, a sore <laughs> subject here, but like now if you don't have a tattoo, you almost stand out more than if you, you know what I mean? It's like the, the roles have reversed. Like if you're one of the people that actually just wants to be present and watch a movie, you're different. <laughs> you're an outcast. Hey, what's wrong? You're not li- you don't like it or something, bro? And, and then now I become the asshole because I'm like talking to my girlfriend in the theater and I'm like, these people need to put their phones down. You know what I mean? It's and the I, first thing everyone says. Please silence your phones. Put them away. Put them away. Don't film the movie. Uh, and if you're going to film the movie, actually film it and try to bootleg it. You know what I mean? May, like if it's a business, it's a business, you know, nothing but respect. But I uh, and then people, the the audacity to post it on your Instagram story after you do it. You know what I mean? I've seen some of this, too. So I don't know. It fired me up last night. Barbie was such a good movie. And there were a couple times where the audience were taking me out of it with the with the filming of the screen. But we'll let it be. Two great movies. Go see them in theaters. Go see Mission Impossible as well. Also, if you haven't seen, shout out to Tom Cruise. If you haven't seen the video of this man jumping a motorcycle 
off a cliff. He did it how many times, they said? Six times. Six times. And he did the Michael Jordan six. I mean, Ugh. this is literally iconic stuff. I don't even think you need, I mean, go see the movie, obviously, support support uh, these artists, but you might not even need to go to see the movie. Just go watch that 27-minute video of Tom Cruise because when he first does it, everyone on set is basically like, is Tom Cruise going to kill himself right now in front of all of us? And then he survives. He gets to the ground. Everything works out perfectly. Everyone in production is yelling, we got the shot. We got the shot, Tom. Yes, don't worry about it anymore. And he's like, let's do it again. Let's run it up. And he ends up doing it six times in total. And uh, I, I mean, Matt Damon on the Smartless podcast told the story about Tom Cruise going up uh, to the safety guy and asking him about running around that building in the movie before. Right, yeah. And the safety guy's like, absolutely not. We cannot do that. And he was like, I'm going to do it. Because <laughs> he's kind of the boss, too. He's not just like the star. He's kind of like the boss on set, right? So it's just... You have like an insane person running the show, but he, he, he can't kill him. So he's literally the greatest stuntman of all time. And he's also and he's one, like the, the one greatest of the leading men of all time. Crazy. I mean, he deserves an Oscar or something. I don't know what he deserves, but uh, it's great entertainment. So if you if you want to spend times at times at the movies uh, right now, go do it. It's great. Um, another shout out from an old friend, an old foe, Mr. K. He's back. He was in practice. The official Duke men's basketball account put this out. Mr. K is giving a speech to the team. John Shire is right behind him. Uh, Mr. K said, quote, great players don't assume. Um, and if they do, I guess you make an ass out of him and the rest of the Duke staff. But you do not assume in Mr. K's world. There was a lot of people talking about how K needed the spotlight. He was supposed to, quote unquote, stay out of the way. And now he's back in practice talking to the team. I'm going to say it, folks. I kind of love it. We need Mr. K. We need it. And Duke needs it. They need to be who they are. They need to have that forward face, which is the face of a man named Kay. And uh, I think this was great. I know that he's an NBA guy now, but I think Coach K, college basketball is always open. The door is always open. I like that he's in practice. I like that he's imparting some wisdom. And a lot of people were going to say, Tate, I thought you would hate this. I kind of love it, Kyle. and, And we need it and we want to see more of it because I like when Kay is contradictory. And, you know, the fact that he said he will not hover around the program he will not be around. You will not see him, not even in the shadows. He is very much around and on camera and giving speeches. And again, folks, in case you missed it, he has not left his office. He still has his office, the same office he had when he was head coach. So, uh, Mr. K, great to see you. It's good for everybody. Good for good for the brand. Good for OSP. Good for conversations. Um, are you excited to hear this news, Kyle? Yeah, I've actually got news on top of news. Oh, okay, I got please. another Duke shout out. Oh gosh, in uh, my uh, this comes from Forbes, not not our not our not crack, the spun, not the spun, not SI, who is also a shadow funding behind the spun. <laughs> uh, this is from Forbes, and this is Duke basketball embarks on unique NIL event in Chicago. This the team Duke basketball who who cannot have anyone from their. Uh, coaching staff there. This includes Coach K, who's uh, who is or isn't still uh, the Emperor Palpatine of Duke. Um, so basically, what they've what they've done is it's a three day event in Chicago. It's this is all nil. It's called the fundraising event, and nobody can tell me where the funds are going to. Uh, but it's a fundraising event for twenty five hundred dollars. Fans can attend the three twelve run on July 29th in Chicago, which includes a forty five minute pickup game <laughs> followed by a meet and greet and a cocktail hour and dinner with the Duke team and staff. And so this is all through the guise of NIL. This is a fundraiser for what? I don't know. For the bag. For, <laughs> for the for, bag. For the larger bag that is Duke About basketball. 50 people have expected, are expected to have purchased tickets by Saturday. The revenue generator will be shared by the players. 
something that wasn't possible until uh, players are recently able to profit from their name, image, and likeness. So it's a fundraiser, but it's like, is is a concert also a fundraiser? Like, is, does J. Cole have fundraisers? I'm wondering. <laughs> I'm just telling you this. Uh, Nike is undefeated <laughs> right Dreamville now. Dreamville fundraiser? <laughs> I mean, they're just going to Chicago. This is the home of Shire. This is the home okay. of Kay. And uh, this is a place where, I mean, Duke tries to claim lots of places. They think Madison Square Garden is their home gym. Um, they think Chicago is their home city. Uh, they North Carolina, they're like, uh, we like it sometimes, but for the most part, we're okay to act like we we live in New Jersey. Um, but Chicago is the place to be for all the Duke people. Go donate now. We need the top players to go to Duke because then I can see them first firsthand, up close and personal, um, and and understand kind of what they got going on. So uh, I don't know what that is, Kyle, but it sounds no like no media a bad, allowed. Yeah. It says too. So uh, I don't know what exactly is going to go on there, but no media is allowed. There was also a video that came out of uh, of the Duke players oh, dude, in a hot so tub uh, doing a 2024 national champ. Those got to be the freshmen, right? They, yeah, they have to be. These the are freshmen. these are sophomores. Kyle Filipowski, who is supposed to be the ACC Player of the Year, is in this video. It's a uh, a very saucy video, I would say, is probably the right word to use, and. Uh, a lot of people are are putting this video out saying, uh, will Duke win the title uh, based off this video? I don't know what is going on in Durham, but um, Kay's there. Um, so if there's anyone you want to point the finger at, I guess it has to be Kay. So uh, that is what it is. Um, shout out to the Blue Devils. I like when we get a, a long shout out for Duke because we haven't talked about Duke as much as uh, the rest of the college basketball media would like us to. So there you have it. We did it. We talked about them. Shout out to them. Um, can I do a little personal shout out? Yeah, please. Shout out to Justin Herbert. Um, in case you missed it, folks. That's I your am, quarterback. <laughs> uh, that's my quarterback. I'm a Chargers season ticket holder. This is year three for me. Um, August 20th preseason game. I'll be in the building. So if there's any loyal Bolts fans out there, come up, say what's up. Um, but Justin Herbert, he got the uh, the extension. We're very excited. A lot of people are pointing out that, you know, he's had 14 game-winning drives. They don't want to mention the 17 picks that he threw, you know, at the end of the games uh, when he was going for game-winning drives. But he's 50-50. He's 50-50, baby. <laughs> I, I don't know which way it's going to go. It's either going to be a touchdown and a win or an interception. But either way, it's a great ride. I love Justin Herbert. I love that he grew up an Oregon football fan, went to games as a kid, then ended up being the quarterback. He said he grew up liking the Chargers. They were the only West Coast football team uh, professionally he could root for. Now he's the quarterback of the Chargers. He's a fan playing the position. He loves the game. I met him one time. He's a super cool, chill, laid-back guy. Loves golf, um, which we love on this show. I would love to play golf with Justin Herbert. But when I saw the news, I was just like, that's my quarterback. I love him. Did you see that that thing that was out there that... Herbert and Burrow had like an unofficial uh, thing that they were going to kind of wait for one of the guys to get their thing. And they were like kind of talking about how much they were going to get so they could so they could use that, you know, because the whole thing is like Mahomes signs this deal early. And now mm -hmm. he's like, you know, an underpaid quarterback. Now people are saying it's crazy. a bargain. You're yeah, like, what? <laughs> it wasn't a four hundred and forty five billion or something. So, yeah, I, I think there was some, you know, uh, some back channeling between Burrow and Herbert. So now I think we'll see Burrow's <laughs> Burrow's big old uh, uh, extension. But I thought that was kind of cool that the two, two young guys were like, hey, listen, I know AFC, whatever, but uh, we should we should have each other's backs on this. Right. Yeah, it's good stuff. And also, like, Herbert was drafted in 2020, which is a time when, you know, we thought the world might end. So the fact that uh, we got Justin Herbert in that time period where no one was even really paying attention with the sixth pick, Justin Herbert, Los Angeles Chargers, 
um, to Pimply see him face now. kid. Look at him now. I know, look right? He, he did not look the part necessarily. You're like, I don't know how this is going to work. Looked like he, he needed a different shampoo. You right, know? right. But, uh, he, he, he went he to California, great. got California cool. Same with Brady, right? You saw Brady when he got drafted. He didn't oh, quite look the part, you know what I mean? And then he got and around course, all the supermodels. When, and, when you type in like Tom Brady draft, you just see that, the terrible, unflattering picture of him, which you guys should really stop pushing that narrative. Find a new slant. Find a new slant. Uh, shout out to Tom Brady. Giselle's upset. Um, yes. And I, and I think, yes. And I think if you get divorced, like you're the one who is divorced, right? Like the, someone brought the law. Because when you divorce someone, folks, you sue the other person, basically. So when Giselle brought the lawsuit to Brady, if you would have told him however many months later that she would be jealous of what he's got going on, that's a win for the big dog. I love it. So I know Kyle's fired up I about that. It. I like that headline. Yeah, that my two guys, to Tom Brady, 50 Cent. Right. Tom Brady, Justin Herbert. Those are the two guys we support on this show. Um, one thing to shout out about the Pro-Ams. We talked about the Pro-Ams with Pierce uh, about a week ago. Tyrese Halliburton and Obi Toppin are pulling up in uh, the Indiana Pro-Am. Uh, so go check that out. Dizzy Runs. Uh, Pro-Am is what it's called. Um, it's put on by Kyle Guy. So that's why I wanted to shout that, shout that out because Kyle Guy, legendary guy, friend of the program, helped create a great segment on the show once upon a time. And, uh, you know, his Pro-Am, I mentioned the major Pro-Ams. Uh, I also, also want to shout out Queen City Pro-Am in Charlotte. They were very upset with me. They reached out. They were like, we're in your backyard. And I said, no, you're, no, you're not. <laughs> I live in Los Angeles. The Drew League is in my backyard. But figuratively, I like that people figuratively think I live in North Carolina and I've never left because that's good for the brand. So uh, for the Queen City Pro-Am, yes, it is in my backyard. I, I can't wait to go to some games. Uh, Stephen Curry was apparently supposed to show up at some point. So the was pro supposed to show You guys both blew it off? We No, I didn't blow it <laughs> off. I didn't blow I didn't even know about it, uh, even though it's in my backyard, of course. Um, but uh, shout out to them. Shout out to the Pro-Ams. I like this season. I like this time of the year. Low stakes, a lot of pro-ams. Uh, one last shout-out. I think I just said that before, but this is the real last one. Rob Stone on Fox. Uh, Rob Stone on Fox. He's calling the Women's World Cup in Australia. He is a friend of the program. He likes North Carolina. He met my whole entire family at the Final Four in 2022. We worked together at Fox. He is the guy. He is the host. He was, uh, I think Bill Simmons was in his wedding, by the way. Um, so it's a small world. Um, but anyways, Rob Stone... Great guy. I am trying to figure out how to get the Australia time zones to work out where we can have him on the show to talk about the World Cup a little bit. Um, it'll probably have to be something where we do it at like 6 o'clock Pacific and it's like 10 o'clock the next day in Australia. But we're trying to work out the logistics. But Rob Stone on Fox, shout out to him. Doing great work. Want to have him on the show. If you're not watching the Women's World Cup, it's great national nostalgia. And I'll tell you this. I'm a USA guy. I always will be. I'll always fight for the USA. And uh, the women, they're doing their best. And they're playing. They played last night, if you're listening, on Thursday. But uh, check in, tune in, and Rob Stone's doing a great job. Have you seen Brittany Griner, Kevin Durant buzz? Have you seen any of that? I remember. You think it's real? I, speaking of USA, I remember a Team USA video when maybe they were in Japan, right? And uh, and KD Brittany Griner is like on the like the video, the little social media video, and uh, she's like trying to flirt with KD, and he's like, "Nah, pause," you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, and he let it go, and uh, maybe that planted the seed. I don't know. I think KD is a um, is such a hooper. That like maybe he like he needs another because he used to date someone in the WNBA. I think he might need a, a fellow hooper. Um, that's how much he loves the game so much so that he needs to marry someone that also plays the game. Good, so. Stay true to yourself, bro. And that kid would be incredible. I mean, if they did have a kid, that kid is going to dunk all over Victor Wimbanyama. I'll tell you that. And the USA basketball scene needs a hero, and maybe it's it's those two to bring it to us. Uh, BGKD, 
they go by their, their initials. We love that. We love that. And uh, I don't know about the buzz, though. I don't ever believe the buzz. Yeah, I know. You can't. You can't. I've never seen it from a rep- reputable source. It's just sort of like. Is it on the spun yet? No. Check the spun. I'll check the spun. <laughs> You're right. This isn't college women's, but maybe, maybe it'll work. I'll check and we'll get back to you next episode. Yeah, we'll check the spun. We'll figure it out. Again, this has been One Shining Podcast. Appreciate everyone tuning in. We love the Wednesday episodes. We'll be back on Monday with Cowman. Uh, regular scheduled programming back on OSP. We're excited to get back to it and appreciate everybody listening. We'll see you then. 